1: There's a running joke that journalist Chloe Servino writes about, that lab-grown meat is just about to happen, That it's almost here. It's a line she's heard a lot. I didn't even really
2: want to write about lab-grown meat in this book, and I came to this place where there was so much momentum and there was so much money building in this emerging space that I felt like
1: it had to be addressed. Chloe's book, Raw Deal, is all about the U.S. meat industry, lab-grown meat, a.k.a. cultivated meat, is just a small sliver, a bite, really, of her book. But it's something she says she couldn't ignore. There are a lot of institutional investors
2: and billionaires and financiers who have invested a lot of money in this and now have a vested interest in making this come to light and and, and get sold quickly, even when these products are often going to be selling at a, a profit
1: loss. And just a few weeks ago, the Food and Drug Administration gave an important thumbs up to lab-grown chicken from a company called Upside Foods, saying it had no further questions about the food safety.
0: This is real chicken, and so is this and this. Except it's made in labs and commercial food production facilities instead of being raised on a farm.
1: Lab-grown meat has been in development for more than two decades. And while it's available in Singapore, this would be a first for the U.S., There's only a bit more inspection to do and
2: some work to do on these, how these labels will really look. But by 2023, we're going to be probably in a place where many of these products, or at least maybe upside foods, is selling to the masses.
1: Today on the show, are you ready to eat lab-grown meat? To understand lab-grown meat, you have to think of it like a building. There's scaffolding, that might be protein from animals or plants. And then the cells, whether they're chicken or beef or fish, grow on top of that, usually inside a bioreactor. It starts off with
2: harvesting essentially these cells and finding the right cell that's going to produce the best tasting and the best growing meat. In these bioreactors, these these sort of um, high pressure cooking environments that have been actually used to make vaccines for a really long time. And so once they have a cell line that they like, then the production process really starts. So these cells, again, are taken from a chicken or a fertilized egg. Once they have a bunch of cells to use, they then need to have those cells grow. Different startups are using different formulas for these growth mediums, but they're often a mix of amino acids, fatty acids, sugars, trace elements, salts, vitamins, some of the compounds that are in human food. And and there are so many different startups even just trying to create the growth mediums, and and that's a whole sector that's emerging. Basically, what allows these cells to eat, right, and and expand? Exactly, exactly. And so once these cells then are mixed into the slurry where they have this growth medium to sustain them they're thrown into a cultivator or a bioreactor and there's heat there's oxygen levels for, to to encourage this growth and what they hope happens are that cells start growing really really quickly and over 2 to 3 weeks you then have these these products emerging where the cells have have coalesced around this scaffolding and often the scaffolding is even just you know like a plant-based protein like a soy protein Hmm. itself growing up the scaffolding taking up all the growth medium and then coming out in
1: three weeks two weeks
2: as a formed muscle
1: that's completely fascinating. I mean, there there's a there's a section in your book where you even describe one company that's doing it like 3D printing and like instead of ink, they've got like what different different proteins in the chambers? Exactly. Yes. So they're oh. are definitely so
2: many different startups that are trying to do this different ways. They're doing 3D printing, many of them. So others are using fermentation, but essentially the 3D printing startup I write about, Mia Tech, which is backed by a, a billionaire and a bunch of other investors who are quite fascinating, they have these inks split up like like a cyan, like a black, like a magenta, like a yellow. And there's fat ink and there's a muscle ink. And the secret sauce to having them fill in correctly is, and what will be what these cells actually latch onto is that concoction that makes it work. And this company is even commercializing the production process. They're not making their own meat. They're making the machinery and the plants and the infrastructure to make it in this way. They want to print somebody else's meat. Exactly. Contract
1: manufacturing of 3D printed meat of the future. How big is this industry? Like, is it possible to even figure out what the universe of cultivated meat looks like? I, I mean, that's an interesting question because in the US, you could say the market is zero
2: because. There's nothing sold right now, and you can only get your hands on it if you're an investor or a friend of an investor who you know knows Josh Tetrick or another one of these folks who who has the
1: product if, if coming from these really small pilot plants. Josh Tetrick's company, Eat Just, has lab-grown chicken available for sale in Singapore, but not in the U.S. yet.
2: There's been billions of dollars invested in it across the world, and a lot of that has been in the U.S., but a lot of it's also in Asia, particularly some in Europe too. I write about a lot of the different deals and the projections for how big this market can grow are really, really big. But a lot of these studies also are being funded by a lot of the companies or the investors. And so it's really unclear. And I personally like to use trailing figures, you know, figures that have already happened, not not projections that look into the future because you never know what's actually going to happen. And that's why I look at sales. And right now in the US, there's still zero sales happening in Singapore. Small, small, tiny.
1: I think one of the things that is interesting when we're looking at, at any kind of emerging technology is to try to think about like what's driving it. Right. So I just I'm curious, like in your reporting, where is the push for lab grown meat coming from? Do, do regular people want to eat it? Is it something that investors are just interested in the returns or, or is this like a policy question of, well, there are environmental benefits. Therefore, let's start this process. Like, where's the demand?
2: Where is the demand? I write a lot about in my book about how in the meat industry, in the alternative protein industry, and in this emerging cultivated meat, lab-grown meat industry, there's a lot of manufactured demand and manipulation of demand or or billionaires that are trying to prove the market and willing to take risks or, or, or losses on these investments where others can't, which then, you know, ends up, fueling the market, even though it might end up being a bubble. Hmm. Um, but there are, you know, there, there are the techno optimists, there are the techno apologists, there are folks that are really into the animal welfare who are excited about cultivated meat. There are folks who are really excited about rewilding and getting rid of all the landmass that the industrial meat industry has taken up to farm all the corn and soy that all these livestock are needing when they go to these feedlots. And a lot of the, the, this, the super environmental Folks are really excited about what cultivated meat can do to, to bring this to the masses. But then there also is a lot of the Silicon Valley money. And I write in the book about dumb money. There's a lot of expectations put on these startups, a lot of money being thrown at them. I talked to so many different founders in the book about how they can get as much money as they possibly want. It's shocking to hear them talk about how, how easy it is for them to get money for any of this. But hmm. when, you know, when there are so many other Climate strategies or climate potential solutions that do struggle. And so there's been a lot of money flowing in here and a lot of pressures put on these startups. But we'll see because really no
1: one's actually in this yet. Proponents of cultivated meat tout a couple of things. First, that a lot of animals don't need to be slaughtered to create the product. And second, because you don't have those animals, there's no need for carbon intensive feed to be grown for them. If cultivated meat, lab-grown meat could
2: take over the meat industry, there would be a significant reduction of corn, soy. That obviously would lead to less water pollution, less soil erosion. Pretty big deal. But with any of these alternatives and these challengers, there are big trade-offs. And lab-grown meat has been starting to get some scrutinies. can get put more under the microscope for the environmental impact, but people really still think it's this perfect climate food and there, there's nothing perfect. We're never going to be able to eat our way out of this climate change. This is a lovely quote I love from New York Times is Kim Severson, but there have been some studies. And to me, it boils down to the actual emissions here and the electricity and the energy involved with these plants and this production. Lab-grown meat facilities take up enormous amounts Of energy. And Hmm. right now, most of the plants, most of these companies aren't really able to be building the plants that have their own wind or solar. One of the more startling things is that many of these founders are just banking at the end of the day on the US government to electrify the grid. As they've said, is a goal by 2030, but it's a pretty far-off goal. And I think it'll take a lot to get there. And there aren't really founders or startups that are taking the renewable energy side to this plant production as seriously as, as it probably should be. But you know, there are several studies I write about in the book that you know, even compare conventional cattle production or conventional chicken production or even some of the alternative like soy protein-based ones or mushroom-based ones with lab-grown meat. And while it uses less land and while that's the, the clear benefit to this, If lab-grown meat did use traditional energy sources when it's at scale, it would be worse than industrial meat production. Hmm. Wow.
1: Do we know if it's any better for you?
2: That is a can of worms, but so many different ways to answer it. Anything that's ultra-processed, it's going to be extremely difficult to say that that's healthy or good for you. Hmm. And while the label claims are one of the big areas that's going to need a lot of scrutiny, as these products are commercialized, what I will also say is, I write also in my book about how, with lab-grown meat, but also with industrialized meat, it really, really matters what animals eat, and 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 if they eat a monoculture, their nutrition and that meat that we eventually end up eating, that's felt by that, and it's 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 hurt by that, and when animals are able to eat. On the open range and pick and choose the actual different foods that they can eat completely changes the phytonutrients and the nutritional makeup of the meat. Omega 3s, fatty acids, all these really, really important things for our brain health, our eye health, lots of different gut health. And with lab grown meat, you will never be able to have a system where there's phytonutrients. There's also, I think, long term questions around all the different additives that are being used. And on top of that, there's also the long-term question of antibiotics that are used. So those are used in in lab-grown meat? Yeah, you know, uh, even though there aren't animals in confinement, there's still a big risk of foodborne illnesses like salmonella or E. coli in many of these startup products. And so some of them don't use antibiotics or claim they don't, but many are still using antibiotics, which does drive more antibiotic resistance. That's going to be one of the biggest public
1: health threats we face in the next bunch of decades. When we come back, lab-grown meat costs how much?
0: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
1: So, first it was Dade County.
0: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
1: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which
0: shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity.
1: Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle.
0: His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative.
1: It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice
0: homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight. That We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay, rights gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders.
1: My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you.
0: Floburn. <laughs> Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
1: This might sound surprising, but Chloe hasn't tasted lab-grown meat yet. She doesn't want to take a freebie from a company she's reporting on. And... This stuff isn't exactly like letting someone buy you a $5 tuna sandwich. It can cost thousands of dollars. Could you help me understand why cultivated meat is so expensive to make? Because it is not cheap.
2: Yes, of course. I think that is the big question. The first lab-grown burger cost $330,000. Wait, three hundred thirty thousand dollars? Yes, back in twenty thirteen. That's bananas. Yes, yes, three hundred thirty. Just again, one burger patty, and it was this huge media frenzy, song and dance when it was unveiled.
0: Texture, the 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 mouth feel has
1: a feel like meat. The absence is, I, I feel like the fat. You know, like it's 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 a leanness to it. But but the bite, you know, feels like uh, you know a. Conventional
0: hamburger.
2: And so, uh, about an ounce by my estimates, it's between $100,000 plus just to produce right now. And there are many different startups that are trying to figure out how to make this cheaper, but it's going to take a really long time and a lot of money and a lot of resources to figure this out because there's two big ways that this is expensive. The first is the growth medium that we were talking about before. There are there's a lot of money just going into figuring out how to make a sustainable growth medium that actually is cheap to produce. So that's number one. But the other part of this, which I think folks really don't think about, is that the actual high-pressure cooker machinery is really quite expensive, And these bioreactors have been typically only used by big farmer, like, like a Merck to manufacture drugs before, but now all these lab-grown startups have been on wait lists for years, like you know, trying to get these bioreactors made for them years off in the future because bioreactors that are currently out there are really, really small scale, mostly for vaccine production, like the COVID vaccines. And so that's also why they've been in such high demand. But to make a lab-grown meat, you're gonna need them to be so much bigger Good meat in Singapore is making their meat out of a a 1,200 liter bioreactor. But Josh Ettrick estimates that he'd probably need 10, 250,000 liter bioreactors to produce actually enough meat to to, to meet meet commercial scale. So now there is a lot of demand for
1: these new machines and wait lists years long. Does this high cost translate into? a product that is just inaccessible for most people. Like if you think about it kind of spinning out into the future, it seems like then that it would only be available to people who can pay a ridiculous amount of money. Absolutely. And that's why there's so much money flowing into the stakes
2: and the expensive products. A lot of the investors are picking those startups over the ones that are trying to make more, more accessible lab grown meat because they think because there is so much cost involved with production that, you know those higher end products going be the only way to really make these costs balance out at a certain point where they're going to be able to make money.
1: so it it becomes an exercise for the ultra wealthy until they can figure out a way to scale it. Unfortunately, you know, and then it's just gonna be again subsidized by billionaires to get to a scale where maybe
2: it hits the masses enough that are interested in eating it, but it may also never see the actual adoption it needs. I do see a potential future in in, in balancing out this power dynamic that's emerging if you know, a cultivated meat could be working in a supply chain where there is a public food sector. If this technology is, is more commercialized with open source mentality, if it isn't something where they're putting patents on everything or, or hoarding information and intellectual property at a a disadvantage to, to, to actually making this technology, which is a groundbreaking wild and, and incredible technology to actually make it work for the people.
1: You've been using the vaccine analogy, and I suppose it's not unlike the intellectual property questions surrounding vaccines. Same
2: pressure to profit, same pressure from investors, and same issues with demand and supply.
1: I want to learn a little bit more about the slaughter-free claims here, because again, one one of the kind of talking points for cultivated meat is that animals do not have to be slaughtered. But I learned from reading your work that that is not entirely true.
2: Well, there are a lot of these formulas that still even are using fetal bovine serum, which is a devastating ingredient. Fetal bovine serum is one of those ingredients that has been used to facilitate these cells eating and growing. But fetal bovine serum can only be obtained in one way, and it's draining the blood from a pregnant cow. That's that's pretty horrifying. It's not great. And it's quite antithetical to the entire premise of this no-kill meat. And it's just one of the other kind of lingering questions that continues to exist as this gets commercialized perhaps more quickly than
1: it really should be. Do some companies say, we can move away from this, or we want to move away from this, or, or does every growth medium require fetal bovine serum? They've
2: been moving away from it for years, and they've been trying really hard, but it's pesky. I mean, it's been quite difficult to find other successful growth mediums that, again, can be produced at scale with low costs. So it's definitely a big priority, but it still
1: exists. But even if you assume the cost will come down and some alternative to fetal bovine serum could be found, there is, for lack of a better term, a bit of an ick factor with cultivated meat. One question that I keep coming back to, and whether it's about fetal bovine serum or really just the larger concept, and maybe this is silly given how horrifying US industrial meat production actually is that that people often overlook, but do you think consumers will just be grossed out? There's an aspect
2: of that. Is it the matrix? Is this just an amino acid lop soup that is being thrown together with different additives and emulsifiers and you know flavor science and formulas and fragrances? I wonder what's really in a lot of these ingredients because, again, it'll really come out when some of these labels are present. But right now... What's in this like mystical slop is the intellectual property for a lot of these startups. It is there some of the, the the actual wealth that they have in terms
1: of uh, how this will get made. One of the things that really comes across in your book is how a lot of the attempts to replace U.S. industrial meat production and and, and that entire system seem to end up replicating it in slightly different ways and i wonder in your reporting process if there was anything that that made you hopeful that kind of this could be disrupted that there could be a different way to think about what we eat and and how it how it is for our bodies but also for the planet
2: who owns the systems of production has really dictated what the average american can access full stop and well, that's been disastrous in terms of how industrial meat has been made. And it's also led to a lot of ultra process and unhealthy and potentially even not so great for the environment plant-based meats that have been coming out as well. The lab-grown industry is emerging with many of the same investors, many of the same institutional loan backers, many of the same corporations that they're working with to create this system within this broader industry. We don't have enough time. To start from scratch, unfortunately, we really need to make significant, significant changes for the environment in terms of how we make meat and how we make food in the next seven years. It needs to happen by 2030. There's already been irreversible damage. But lab grown meat and and a lot of these challenges that are working within these existing structures, there's the fear that that's why industrialized meat has been able to control so much power and profits and, and, and control so much more of the food industry for so long because there's this kind of race to the bottom happening where these, these farmers markets and local producers and plant-based meats and even maybe some medieval lab rooms are fighting it out for just a tiny, tiny fraction of total, totally of what's totally eaten in this country. And so we don't have time to start from scratch, which means we need to repurpose the assets. We need to repurpose the supply chains and change how these systems and are leveraged I really think we can get there. I hope this book is a call to action, especially for the workers that are in these big companies or in these investment houses that are investing in lab-grown meat and thinking about how the intellectual property or the public aspect of, of these formulas will end up working one day. There are so many different ways that
1: we all have to demand these changes. What would push that? You know, ocean liner. Like, is it is it a, a Walmart or a McDonald's or a U.S. Department of Education saying like we only want beef that meets these standards or we won't accept feedlot animals or like what what does that fundamentally
2: meat consumption meat demand needs to go down. There are so many meat packers still that are expecting significant growth and it needs to go in the other direction. Feedlots. Production systems that pollute there when there's confinement. That all needs to come to an end. The book talks about how there is a place for certain very specific ethical types of meat in the future, particularly because Buffalo. Buffalo for one. Um, hunting is another example, but there is always going to be a a place for a small subsect of, of of farming. I mean, there are some land, some soil in this country and around the world that can't produce food in any other way, or have been so degraded by industrial farming and chemical farming that they will never be rehabilitated unless there is grazing rotationally with hooves and manure doing the work. But it's going to be completely different, and we need to think completely differently about what our plates look like.
1: I, I have to admit that I like interrupted my husband several times as I was reading this book to say, like, okay, well, okay, so we're going to start eating buffalo, and and we're going to do it this way, and. For you, like you really did a lot of research in this book. You went on the line in these meatpacking plants. You did a lot of stuff that I don't think a lot of people would do. Um, has what you eat changed? I've taken a
2: very hard look at how I eat personally. And I mean, this It was dark writing this book, it, it was tough. It, it, there's a certain point where you feel like there's nothing you can eat that's right. And I didn't want to feel that way because I also think. It's hard to put a lot of really strict standards on yourself. I'm not someone who does well with that. Other people can be. and to put people out of work. Absolutely that too. I played club sports growing up as a kid. I was nicknamed Mickey D's on my club team because I ate that many McNuggets in between tournament games. I I was always a very big eater. I read a chapter in the book about eating a 36-ounce steak when no one else at the table could finish it. But at this point, I, I have really fundamentally changed how I eat, but then also the systems that I'm supporting. I think it's just as important to eat less meat or to have beans like my Rancho Gordo bean club subscription or the mushrooms we grow in the apartment here. It's just as important to to eat those things, but then also to be supporting the financial institutions that are going to be supporting the communities that are going to help us all survive crisis and dignity. And so when I'm buying my food, I'm often, I'm really not going to supermarkets as much as possible because almost all meat at supermarkets is coming from these you know, top four meat packers and these really industrialized supply chains. I have a CSA um, just down the street in the neighborhood for uh, different monthly organic vegetables. And then if I'm getting any meat, it's through the food hub, which is essentially just an online website at the like marketplace where there's a bunch of different independent purveyors from across upstate New York and Vermont and close to the area. And they're selling their food. And instead of having to go to a farmer's market and take the time and not know if there's going to be foot traffic or not, they then work with this provider, this food hub that helps them figure out the logistics and brings it then to the farm. So it's distributed through our farm share. And I really appreciate these financial systems that can get that dollar to actually be felt by that producer as much as possible, but then also does create like an actually sustainable financial situation for the long-term.
1: Chloe Servino, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. So much fun. Chloe Servino is a staff writer covering food and agriculture at Forbes. She's also the author of Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. You should check it out. And that is our show for today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. And this is Joanne's last show, and I want to thank her so much for all her work and guidance. We will miss her. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of Audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a little request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up, and you'll get all your Slate podcasts ad-free. All right, we are off for the next two weeks for the holidays, but we'll be back in the new year with new shows for you.
0: With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
1: So, first it was Dade County.
0: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And
1: then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene.
0: Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most
1: repulsive lifestyle.